This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gurno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Noriko Ussel, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Dr. Ussel is the author of Public Properties, Museums in Imperial Japan, published by Duke University Press in 2013. Dr. Also, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Your first book, Public Properties, looked at museums in Imperial Japan and particularly how the Meiji state was constructing these museums almost as a way to exhibit themselves. Could you tell us a little bit about this project and what were some of the big questions that you were looking at in the book? Sure. I was just looking at it again. And I was remembering that in some ways, the whole project started with how strange museums are, essentially, as a project. I mean, we're very used to museums. You know, museums are everywhere and used for all kinds of things. But the idea of opening up a permanent space and putting objects in cases and having people walk around and look at them, sometimes in great crowds, which can be really miserable, you know, how did that come to be as <laughs> part of what initiated this project? And of course, the Meiji period is a time when we see so many things come into existence that hadn't been done before or thought of before or put into practice in a particular way. So that was the sort of start of museums. And definitely, I think the other thing that is very much at the core of the project is that while the museums that I look at are largely art museums and they're about exhibiting Japanese art and constructing a sense of national identity very much for the purposes of the state, they're not really internally inspired projects, by which I mean museums come to Japan, of course, through participation in World's Fairs and then developing domestic expositions um, with the idea of drumming up some business for Japanese commodities, earning foreign currency to fund industrialization and the like. So this nation idea, of course, is born of interaction with Western imperial powers, of course. And the museum form is a very useful way for the state, in a sense, to cover its tracks and naturalize this idea of national community, national subjects and the like. So as many visitors to Tokyo will know, you know, many of these museums are located around Ueno Park and are a big tourist attraction in Tokyo today. You know, if we think about tourists experiencing these spaces in these museums today, it also raises this question of how did Japanese people at the time in the Meiji period react to these museums? That's a great question because I love thinking about the response. And that's part of, for me, the, the strangeness, right, of museums and that, you know, how do people come to want to go to museums and how do they learn to behave? So the Ueno space now that has a lot of the uh, national museums has an interesting history of use. It used to be a sacred site, a temple where the connection with the shogunate was pretty strong. And that is also a site of a battleground and the sort of the, the transition from the shogunate to the Meiji state. So it's turned into empty space, wasteland, 
And then various government ministries sort of jockey for use of that very attractive open space. And the folks with the museum in mind win, and they're able to take this very central space, right, and turn it into a new kind of symbolic space. So part of what has happened is that the symbolism, the importance of that space to represent power and authority to the public, in a sense, remains, but is reconfigured from sacred space to secular space that is devoted to building up a new sense of national community identity. You know, I'll just throw in there that, of course, you know, I was in graduate school in the 1990s, so a long time ago, and one of the sort of great liberating ideas of that time was sort of the invention of tradition. And that that very much informs all of my work, the sort of how how things that look old are actually quite new. So this space is used to invite visitors. It's used as exposition space. And the way in which the state teaches people how to enter a museum space or an exposition space, and they post a lot of lists saying that, you know, this is not a space that you can treat quite like a temple space or a place where Musée Monod, the sort of sideshows and the like are being performed. But rather, this is a, a new kind of space that's respectable and that you have to be quiet. You have to wear decent clothes. They very early on post rules like no people who are intoxicated are allowed to come into this space. People with loud shoes should you know, not wear their shoes in the hallways. All kinds of, you know, sort of small details like that. And these lists, I love the lists, point to a very active reforming of the behavior of the audience for both expositions and then and then museum spaces. And so we're talking about these museums as ways for the state to exhibit itself in a way. So if we look at the contents of the exhibits, what is that kind of image that the state is trying to present through these museums? Right. It's kind of complicated. It's back to that sort of outside is shaping the inside. But the inside is not empty, of course. Museums grow out of Japanese state exposition activity. And these exhibit organizers have to negotiate. What they would really like to do is present Japan as a modern imperial power. But they don't really have the means to do so and aren't really allowed to do so in their sort of early forays into world's fairs, into international expositions. So they find that what receives positive reception on the international stage is exhibiting what seem to be like old things, right? So Japanese art and Japanese crafts are very uh, lucrative, actually, as um, items to purvey at international expositions. So that gives these exhibit organizers a hint that, you know, maybe the way to break into the international market is not necessarily, they're, they're not able to manufacture modern goods yet. The hope is to do so. But in the meantime, they can foster, nurture, develop the sort of crafts and the like that are, are very popular overseas. So that's actually where the emphasis on art uh, sort of emerges within the domestic sphere so that the sort of alternative that didn't happen was to make the National Museum focused on science and industry, which 
certainly the domestic expositions were highlighting domestic industry. And you mentioned that Japan is trying to present itself as this imperial power, but maybe in the early Meiji period, it can't really do so. But then certainly when we get into the 19-teens, 1920s, after Japanese territorial expansion and colonial acquisition, it it certainly can do that. And so how does the incorporation of Taiwan and Korea and even the incorporation of some museums in those places change this way that Japan exhibits itself. Right. My favorite domestic exposition is the Osaka exposition. And that's where a lot of the hopes or aspirations of the Japanese state come to fruition. It's an opportunity, finally, for the Japanese state to really replicate, in some ways, the visual and spatial strategies employed by the Western imperial powers in the world's fairs. So the way the state represents itself in the Osaka Exposition is it is housed in these sort of neoclassical buildings, which was the sort of, you know, commonly assumed uh, universal way of stating some kind of modern authority, right? And then the prefectures that had their opportunities to exhibit themselves were made in a sense to be they were to be more particular. So they used architectural styles that were more tied to each particular region. So, you know, Nagoya had a sort of castle of sorts and the like. And then the sort of most interesting part, right, is then the state also builds what they call the Taiwan Kan or the Taiwan Pavilion. And that's where they really get to say we are in fact a colonial power and that Taiwan Kang is thoroughly, you know, Orientalist. It also has, you know, objects that are related to essentially the Japanese conquest of Taiwan, so military uh, successes and the like. So, you know, and it's it, the structure itself is very, you know, exoticized. So that's where Japan really gets to have that sort of World's Fair spatial strategy employed for its own purposes in a fully realized model where there's a sort of Western modern, you know, whatever center, which is the state, and then the particular regions in the World's Fair that would be Japan or Korea or Mexico and the like. But in the domestic uh, exposition, it's the various prefectures and then the colonial territories are exhibited. More recently, your research has looked at another type of display of goods, and that has to do with the display of consumer goods in department stores. So could you tell us more about your current research on consumerism in pre-war and wartime Japan? Absolutely. My current project is born from a serendipitous acquisition of some wartime issues of the department store journal called Mitsukoshi. And That set of journal issues are very intriguing because they don't really make sense. They don't really hold together because they are publications of an institution that is focused on consumption and luxury and Westernness. And they're trying to continue to make their way to hold on to this identity, you know, at a time in the midst of the total war period where the state argues, you know, luxury is the enemy. So, 
it's hard, right, for the department store Mitsukoshi to be loyal and patriotic and also advocate for consumption, uh, particularly Western consumption of Western objects during this period. And that, that drama is sort of played out in the series of journal issues. What we see in these issues are multiple narratives taking place at the same time. There's a lot of sort of wartime propaganda that grows. My journals go, uh, my issues go from uh, 1939 to 1943. So, you know, 1939, 1940, you know, before Pearl Harbor, you still have a continuation of a fair amount of celebration of, say, childhood culture, you know, the bourgeois, you know, the uniforms, the coats, the educational learning toys, and so on and so forth. You have women dressed stylishly and the like. From 41 on, you do see more and more reporting from the battle lines, the celebration of sort of wartime chic as illustrated by Vichy French women. So one story that you can tell, certainly with those issues, is how the story is swallowed up by the state and becomes just another propaganda organ. However, when you look closely, there is a lot of continuity with the earlier emphasis on both consumption and sort of the idealization or, you know, the suggestion that people can lead the good life. So you continue to have a long-running series on tea huts or tea houses, famous tea huts or tea houses in the area. The floor plans are laid out and, you know, the history is told and it's not framed as rah-rah Japan but rather, you know, it's its own sort of strand, and you have discussions of philosophy, you have baskets of goods and things like that, swimsuit, not issues, but uh, layouts and so on and so forth. And that's another storyline. And what troubles me about an easy way to put together these two storylines is that, on the one hand, it could be just Mitsukoshi is swallowed up on the, by the state. The other story could be, uh, and yet there is resistance, right? Because it's always nice to find resistance, you know, so that sort of holding on to Western luxuries and celebrating the good life in various ways is a story that gets emphasized or used as an alibi by department stores in the post-war period. And both stories are true, the story of resistance, or at least not being co-opted, of uh, remaining true to some kind of Western modernity, is very helpful for the department stores when they try to recover, and they do recover spectacularly in their early post-war and through the sort of miracle growth and the like. It's definitely a story that's contrary to our common understanding of wartime Japan. You, you mentioned the luxury is the enemy discourse. Right. Restrictions like women are only allowed to have two curls in their hair. Right. Uh, everyone has to wear this patriotic people's clothing, that kind of mompe, the, these baggy pants. When we think about that, we don't often think about this fancy Western clothing. So I'm really curious how Mitsukoshi is advertising. What types of things are they putting in? Are they still advertising the Western dresses or or are they advertising mompe? Yes, there's an arc to this. So from 39 through, you know, say, yeah, 1940 or so, you have what you'd expect from a department store fashion layout. From 41, you start to have a mix, and you will still see seasonal clothing, new textile patterns, things like that being introduced. But one image that pops into my head is somewhere, you know, after 41, you have odd 
literal framings of Monpe and the things like that and things like that, as if they were fashionable, sort of an attempt to make them fashionable. You know, there's a layout of the newly designed wartime practical dress that Again, they're, they're trying to fit into some kind of framework of beauty and aesthetic appreciation. So there is that complication, right, in terms of what the department, I, I suppose, can say at that time. But I think what I find particularly interesting in these issues is that there's actually a very explicit discourse on consumption. So Komajiro, for example, has an essay in one of the issues, and his main argument is that in an era where consumption is demonized, it's important to remember that consumption and production are not so easily divided. Um, not only is consumption important for you know, reproducing the labor force to engage in production, but that whether we're talking about sewing or cooking and things like that, those are all forms of production that require consumption, like purchase of uh, materials and so on and so forth, to come into being. So he is trying to build a case for the domestic sphere, for consumption and all of these, even the good life, as not being illegitimate, even in the midst of total war. And then what happens over the course of these various essays that are talking about consumption during the wartime period is then you start to have this surge toward do-it-yourself type articles, which is particularly peculiar for department stores, because of course they want to sell commodities. So for a department store to be saying, you know, no, you can do this at home, you can grow this at home, you can be self-sufficient. One essay is like, you know, grow the victory garden. And if everyone has a victory garden, we can produce enough to, uh, it's really twisted, produce enough to send over to China to help war-torn areas, you know, there's no mention of, of course, Japan is invading these areas, but uh, to ameliorate their suffering. So the, the arc for the department store journals during this wartime period is very peculiar, and they end up, in a sense, arguing against themselves. But at the same time, there's this, this retreat into this other world. So the propaganda side of things really actually starts to die down or become much more muted by you know, mid to late 42 and into 43. And what remains is not so much fashion spreads or the wartime propaganda, but these, these sort of imaginings of outside worlds. So, you know, again, you have the tea houses and the like, the tea huts, but you also have a lot of artists being featured and they're all not at all practical. They're not portrayed as producing anything. They are sometimes portrayed in very whimsical poses. One uh, also collectors were being featured, and one of the collectors had this massive rabbit figurine collection. And it's just out there. And it's the only answer, in a sense, the department store has to not being able to be properly productivist under the wartime regime and not quite able to surrender its identity as an institution that champions luxury and the good life and so on and so forth. So, so it moves into sort of the philosophical and the whimsical. And then finally, the series ends because of paper shortage. So speaking of how the war impacts women's consumption, I understand you're also teaching a class that examines this intersection of gender and imperialism. Could you tell us a, a bit about this class and what are some of the themes you're addressing? What are some of the materials you're using? 
Yes, I am teaching currently a class that I call Engendering Empires, Women in Modern Japan and Korea. And this is the second time I'm teaching it. And it's a sort of an experimental class where I'm deviating from the usual model of teaching about women in East Asia, where generally you either have the gender in East Asia class that does China, Japan, and Korea, or you have the sort of national classes, so women in Japanese history, women in Chinese history, women in Korean history. Um, and what I'm trying to do in this class is really highlight the uh, colonial relationship between Japan and Korea in the first half of the 20th century and the impact that has on gender construction with a focus on women. And it's also a way of, I suppose, you know, I'm trying to say to the students that it's important to not always focus on the center, whether you define the center as London or New York for Western modernity, Paris, of course, or in the pre-modern period, of course, China, but rather look at how people not at the center are interpreting, remaking, challenging the various forms that they often are forced to engage with, with unequal treaties and the like. And so in the end, I kind of hope my class becomes a sort of championing of Korea and the issues that the Korean women are facing as the most interesting and in some ways paving the path toward understanding modernity in a much more accurate or complete or up-to-date manner than looking at Japan as a center for Korea or New York as a center in relationship to Tokyo. To that end, we're reading a mix of primary materials and secondary materials. There have been some wonderful projects translating, for example, writings about modern girls in Korea that I'm using extensively. In fact, today, later, I will be trying to talk the students through a primary source analysis paper, a short paper. And to get ready, I'm going to give them an editorial on an argument about the hair length of women in early 20th century Korea. And this person is advocating for short hair. What I found when I sort of tried to walk the students last year through a discussion of what is a primary source analysis is that when they were given a material like that, um, they tended to think that the argument was the argument of the author of that piece. And it took quite some time in that session to really sort of draw them out in terms of how that author's argument fits in a much broader picture. The author's argument about shorter hair, amongst other things, creates a classic argument for sort of progressive modernity and says, look, you know, women in the West have short hair. So that's an argument in and of itself. And Japanese women have shorter hair. We should have shorter hair. And it goes into that awful territory of then saying there are various other parts of, you know, East Asia and the like, Vietnam or also Asia, uh, Asia in a larger sense. So India is also mentioned. And they're sort of positioned lower than Korea in this, you know, they're saying we need to maintain our position. Here I am sort of summing up the argument itself, but I want them to tie those arguments about short hair to discussions of imperialism, to discussions of modernity, to discussions of progress and like. You mentioned one of the things you emphasize in, in class is that 
we shouldn't necessarily think of Japan as the center for Korea, but in some ways the periphery can be more advanced than the center even. And so yes. you mentioned as well that in, in some ways Korea kind of is even more modern than Japan in some regards. Is this discussion of short hair as being redolent of modernity one example of that? And could you give us a few more? Sure. Uh, I, I suppose I wouldn't use the short hair argument as an example of that sort of periphery being more modern than the center. But I would say that one of the things that we see in Korea, for example, is the triangulation between Japan as a center, the West as a center, and most immediately with the um, Christian presence within Korea, which is much stronger than it was in Japan. And the way in which engaging with Christian schools and the like and, and converting was a sort of a maneuver to keep from being entirely captured by the Japanese center. And that sort of constant negotiation between different spaces, that doubled consciousness kind of existence, is much more, I think, at the heart of our experience of modernity in the end than some sense of a stable center and control over one's destiny or one's nation's destiny. So I think in that sense, thinking hard about Korea as a periphery that is not behind is really important. And I think important for the students to start to really dislodge those assumptions of what progress is, what modernity is, and what a center is. And on that note of triangulation of Korea, Japan, the West, there's certainly a lot of circulation as well between all of those places. And, and so do you see these things that are developing in Korea, are they coming back home to Japan, so to speak, in influencing the way that things are developing in Japan? Yes, absolutely. That's a wonderful way of putting it. And I think maybe I can go back to my book for a moment for an illustration of how I, I see that happening. Of course, other scholars have, you know, Louise Young and others have, have done a much more thorough job of this. But with the category of Nihonga, which is well known, right? Nihonga as Japanese style painting, which is a very modern Japanese style painting, but was used as a contrast to yoga or Western style painting in the Meiji period and after. As Japan becomes a colonial power, you find a sort of redefinition of the Nihonga category to become um, Toyoga. And that's born of the Japanese center attempt to become more comprehensive. So to see itself as uh, more than just Japan. And of course, it's, you know, it's not laudable that it's trying to absorb other regions under this term Toyoga that is still rooted in Japanese practice. But it also becomes a space that artists in the colonies can use to enter Japan, in a sense, and start to access some of the power of the center in their own way and to compete with Japanese painters. So it's, it's one of those two-edged swords kind of practices where some space is opened up and is always opened up in the interest of the state, right? And that's what museums are. And yet people are imaginative enough to end up using those tools for their own purposes or even against the state to challenge the state in various ways. One of the examples I love the most and I use for my classes is drawn from Andrew Gordon's Imperial Democracy. And when he talks about Hibiya Koen as something that was opened up for uh, Russo-Japanese War rallies, 
and then ends up becoming a site where people could gather again to protest the state, to criticize the state. And it's that sort of that particular space that enables new kinds of connections. Museums, I think, do that as well in that they're state projects. But in the end, that form came to be used to criticize the sort of dominant narratives uh, that were being propounded by the state. So, you know, the periphery is pushing back and transforming the center, especially, you know, the state at the center is, is something that's always going on and certainly something that I like to have the students explore in the class. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.